On the 1st of May, 1933, hundreds of thousands of Berliners and Germans descended on the parade fields to the south of the Berlin district of Kreuzberg. The air and the atmosphere was charged with excitement. For most, it was not their first May Day. Many had put down their tools in the past on this day normally of the international worker. Yet for all, this was certainly going to be a different May Day. The streets were not hung with the red banners of communism, nor were the buildings adorned with the black, red and gold of the revolutions of 1848 that had become the flag of the Weimar Republic. Rather, the great monumental shift in the national narrative that Germany had advanced on so quickly toward and through had brought out the old black, white and red of the German Empire that many had seen collapse not 15 years prior. However, as they marched, or walked, together along the Grand Belle Alliance Strasse, as they passed the stone to which the old Kaiser Wilhelm I used to mount his horse, toward where the imperial family would have once inspected the German troops, they were not marching to see a restoration of the Hohenzollerns under whom that imperial flag had first flown. Rather, they were marching toward a new national geist. As they came over the rise of the plateau that overlooked Berlin, from which the towers of the Gendarmen marked gleamed in the distance and the steeples of the Nikolaikirche, Sophienkirche and Marienkirche perforated the horizon, there was no mistaking with what they were curiously, willingly or reluctantly involving themselves within. Banners high and red, like the great sails of ships of old, rippled with the currents of the wind. Here it was not the imperial banner, no. It was the banner that had, in a matter of months, been heaved through deception and struggle, force and coercion, weakness and brutality to fly higher than all, and dominated by the jagged cross of the swastika that now cast its darkness on this May Day. This once International Workers' Day, but now tainted forever in the shadow of the swastika. Achtung, Achtung, hier ist die Sendestelle Berlin im Voxhaus. Meine Damen und Herren, welcome to the Achtung History Podcast, written and presented by myself, Simon J. James. This week, in the shadow of the swastika, May Day and the quashing of the unions. To understand May Day under National Socialism in Germany, we also have to understand May Day itself. Whilst it is in some parts of Germany, even today, an ancient holiday that celebrates renewal and rebirth that can be traced back to the Roman Empire and the festival of Flora, the goddess of flowers. It was a festival of life with animals being released back into the wild and in this manner, the festival continued past the Roman Empire's fall and into the history of the tribes of Northern Europe. With the canonization of Valpurga on the 1st of May 870, the festival found itself now incorporated within the Christian religion in the Germanic countries. However, for the context of this podcast, we need to advance and we need to look into the history of May Day in its relation to, principally, the workers and how it became established as a holiday. The 1st of May 1886, in protest to a 12-hour workday and for some a daily wage of just one and a half dollars, thousands of workers in Chicago went on strike. It was a day that would change the course of history and the events of which would form the foundations of the modern May Day. The events leading to this first May Day began with the Long Depression, a period of economic fall that affected not just Europe and America, the Long Depression lasted from 1873 until 1878 in the United States. Historians today place the reasons for this period on many different global factors. The Franco-Prussian War of 1870 to 1871, 
the Great Chicago Fire of 1871 and the Boston Fire the year later, all put a strain on the financial institutions that sent ripples around the world. In the United States following the Civil War, the railroads had been expanded beyond belief. 33,000 miles or 53,000 kilometers of railroad were laid in just five years. Investment had been pouring in and much of it speculative, with factories, docks and surrounding infrastructure constructed in towns and cities across the nation, all however financed with grants, subsidies and hefty amounts of risk. 1873 then brought panic. A chain reaction began with Jay Cook and Company, whom had planned to construct the second transcontinental railroad, when their credit slumped to being worthless and the company filed for bankruptcy. Other banks followed as one event triggered another and eventually the New York Stock Exchange had to close for 10 days in September. But the wheels of a great fall were in motion whilst those on the tracks stood still. Railway after railway began to fall and with it the infrastructure, the promise of factories supplying new goods also disappeared. For the nation, the loss of the railroad construction, the second largest employer in the country, was evidently great, but its knock-on effects were equally so. Durable goods fell in output by 30% and iron and steel by 45%, and it was naturally the workers whom paid heaviest for the speculation at the top. Soon, one in four people were out of work and over one million unemployed. Yet recovery came. The iron of the railroads began to snake across the nation once again, advancing into the once wild frontiers and stimulating growth on speculation. Unemployment quickly fell from 1878 to just 2.5%, but once again, the bubble burst. Although it hadn't reached its pre-panic peak, railroad expansion had in 1882 reached 11,569 miles or 18,619 kilometers. The bubble bursting resulted in another great fall in railroad expansion with just 2,866 miles or 4,612 kilometers laid in 1885. This coupled with the complete collapse of many New York banks resulting in the default on 32 million US dollars worth of debt meant unemployment rose from 2.5% to over 13% in the northeastern United States alone. For those in employment, they saw their worth rise but also came to realize the exploitation they suffered. Where they were hired and disregarded equally at the will of the market built on speculation. It is unsurprising that those in employment in cities such as Chicago made an attempt to organize to protect themselves. In October 1884, at a convention held by the Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions, a date, a date when the eight-hour working day that so many desired, a reduction from the 12 hours that was standard at the time, would become a reality. Over the course of the next 18 months, many joined socialist and anarchist organizations. Others joined an organization known as the Knights of Labor, all in support of the better working conditions. For the Knights of Labor, in those two years, numbers swelled from 70,000 to 700,000. Newspapers and pamphlets talked of the coming strikes, rallying those pessimistic toward the cause and bringing them into the fold. For Chicago, that had a large German population, the Arbeiter Zeitung, edited by August Spies, became a center of support. On the 1st of May, 1886, the protests began. Detroit, New York, and Milwaukee each presented over 10,000 strikers singing the eight-hour-a-day anthem, but in Chicago, the number was almost quadruple. 40,000 people putting down their tools to march in support of the eight-hour day, a number swelled by an estimated 80,000 supporters. The day unfolded peacefully. Yet it did not end. The first rolled into the second as many remained striking, and in turn, the second rolled into the third. Management in some factories decided to lock the workers out and begin hiring new immigrant workers, much to the displeasure of those whom saw their value being undermined. At the McCormick Harvesting Machine Company plant, many strikers gathered in protest, 
but the plant and those who crossed the picket lines were protected by over 400 police officers. Come the end of the working day, the striking workers gathered, rushed to the fence to shout abuse at those whom they felt had betrayed the working man's cause. August Spies was there to witness what unfolded. As he cried for calm, the police raised their guns and they fired into the crowd. Enraged, the extremes, such as the anarchists, printed up new flyers, printed in English and German, and called for the workers to arm themselves and gather the next day at the Haymarket. On the 4th, a rally began, surrounded by the police, August Spies, Albert Parsons, and eventually Samuel Fielden spoke to the crowd of angry workers. But the day was not one of arms. It ran into the evening peacefully. That was until, as Fielden was ending his speech, the police marched into the crowd and ordered it to disperse. Suddenly, at 10.30pm, through the air, a round metal ball flew. It landed at the feet of the officers, a line of detonator cord fizzling from its top. It stopped, just for a brief moment, and then exploded. The explosion killed one police officer immediately and left a further six mortally wounded. Those in the crowd would proclaim that the police fired first, but it mattered not. Seven policemen died, and four workers. The bomb was blamed on the anarchists. Soon there was a rounding up and harassing of the workers, especially the anarchists, and in particular the Germans. Public sympathy moved toward the police and away from the workers, and the support for the strikers dwindled. Factory owners set the working day at ten hours or more, but for the socialist and anarchist elements, the day that the protests began on the 1st of May became a rallying day. This rallying day was made official at the founding congress of the Second International that lasted a week from the 14th of July, 1889. The 1st of May was proclaimed Day of Protests and Remembrance, and across the world it was celebrated with strikes and mass demonstrations. In Germany, as with other nations, it was quickly adopted by the left wing. The Volksstimme, a paper printed by the Social Democrats, the SPD, began as its own entity, separate to other SPD papers, on the 1st of May, 1890. Every year on the 1st of May, it would call on the workers' unity. And in 1901, it ran on the front page with a hymn, which ended with the verses, They join hands in love. United in their noblest endeavor, the labor of the workshop and of the land, in the struggle for a better life. You servants of Mammon, now be warned to renew the robbery of the people. You who are snared by base greed, want to steal our bread, our bread. Sorrow warned you who by glory of battle forged the nations into celts. We want no new Hun empire. No! Human welfare, freedom, and peace. When the Kaiser, Wilhelm II, was forced into exile and the German Empire fell in 1918, the new government of the nation that rose was led by the Social Democrats and Friedrich Ebert attempted on the 15th of April 1919 at the Weimar National Assembly to make the 1st of May a public holiday. But with resistance from the right wing and the breakaway independent Social Democratic Party that would later become the Communist Party, who felt the proposal did not go far enough, the motion was defeated. Nevertheless, the 1st of May remained an important day in Germany throughout the 1920s, and especially during the years of the Great Depression when support for the Communists grew greatly. Therefore, the 1st of May became a rallying cry for the workers of the world to unite. However, it did present a problem. It presented a problem for the opposing fraction on the political spectrum that was rapidly rising in power. The Nationalsozialistische Deutsche Arbeiterpartei and their Führer, Adolf Hitler. So how did Hitler and the Nazis on their coming to power subvert the socialist May Day and form it toward their own ideology? Let's find out. I work for days on the technical realization of May Day. It should be a masterpiece of organization and mass demonstration. 
the party and its organization are penetrating more and more into the state. We are holding a kind of dress rehearsal for May Day in the Lustgarten and on the large festival square, the Tempelhofer Feld. According to human judgment, everything will proceed precisely and smoothly. Gigantic facilities have been built in Tempelhof. They offer a grandiose picture of national socialist design. May Day will be a mass event, the likes of which the world has never seen. The whole people shall unite in one will and in one readiness. In the first year of our revolution, labor will be given back its honor and working class its validity. A complicated set of wheels is now to be set in motion. Now our wide-ranging experience in the field of mass leadership comes to us. No other movement than ours, which knows how to direct the masses, will be capable of such a gigantic demonstration. The words of Joseph Goebbels as he prepared for May Day, a day that typically belonged not to the right wings, but as we explored in the beginning, normally belonging to those considered to be the left. In the 1920s, May Day in Germany had been an important day of struggle for the left-leaning political organizations of the Kommunistische Partei Deutschlands, the KPD, and the Social Demokratische Partei Deutschlands, the SPD. Both the KPD's newspaper, the Jorte Fahne, and the SPD Vorwarts would proclaim the day as the day of struggle for the worker. But there was little unity. Despite each advertising themselves as the parties of the people, there was a deep divide between the two, a rift that had first begun with the SPD when it had, against many of its members, supported the First World War. Left-wing members had split from the party forming the Independent Social Democratic Party of Germany and the Spartacist League. It was from the Spartacist League that the KPD was founded, as Berlin, the German capital, was in the grips of a revolution. It was a revolution that did and still does today bear the name of the initial league, the Spartacist Revolution. Yet it was less a revolution and more a power struggle between the SPD government of Friedrich Ebert and the KPD opposition, both whom had proclaimed a German republic on the 9th of November 1918. When Spartacist-aligned members of the Navy occupied the Chancery in December 1918, Ebert sent in troops. When the uprising in January 1919 of the KPD sought to regain what they felt they had lost at the end of the previous year, Ebert sent in the right-wing paramilitary organization known as the Freikorps, to quash it with gusto. For the leaders of the KPD, Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg, it was more than a disaster. The two were found holed up in an apartment in the Wilmersdorf district of the city by a citizen's militia. Arrested, they were taken to the Eden Hotel that once stood near the aquarium and reptile house of the Berlin Zoo. However, the Eden Hotel was not home to any of the worldly guests of pre-war days. Rather, it was home to the heavily armed Garda Cavallerie Schutzen Division of the Freikorps. Here in the Eden Hotel, they were questioned. Questioning was led by Waldemar Pabst, a 38-year-old first staff officer with the Freikorps Division. Shortly after, Pabst ordered Horst von Fluck Hartung to transfer Liebknecht to Moabit Prison. He never made it. Beaten up by the Freikorps, he was led into the Tiergarten, where he was shot three times at close range, and his body later dumped as an unidentified corpse in a local morgue. Luxembourg was not spared a similar fate. Attacked as she was brought into the Eden Hotel's lobby, she was taken to the nearby Landwehr Canal, where she was shot in the head and her body disposed of in the water, where it remained for almost six months. Pabst was not charged with their murders, and those who helped him received very light sentences furthering the rift between KPD and SPD. Every May Day, following, through crisis, hyperinflation, into the glory of the 1920s of Berlin, the KPD remembered the martyrs of their causes and urged the workers onto the streets of the 1st of May in memory of Liebknecht and Luxembourg. But for May 1929, when the NSDAP was still a distant threat, the events of the 1st of May would be very different. In March 1928, it was revealed in a magazine by the title Das Tagebuch that Reichsanwalt or magistrate Paul Jorns had thwarted a prosecution of the murders of Liebknecht and Luxembourg. Jorns's chief attorney general, Karl August Werner, and himself filed a criminal complaint against the editor of Das Tagebuch, Josef Bornstein. 
for insult and defamation. Although the case would not go to court until the summer of the following year, the case caused the unhealed wounds to flare up. To suppress the enraged KPD and in reaction to the reporter's stabbing in Berlin involving the KPD's paramilitary arm, the Rotterfront Kämpferverbund, or RFB, the SPD appointed Berlin police president Karl Zorgebiel banned the open-air gatherings of the KPD. To the communist ideal, capitalism had entered the third period, when the state exercised its power more severely and was to obstruct any efforts made to organize the proletariat. As such, the 1st of May 1929 is known as Blutmai. It is an event I will cover in more detail in the future, but for now it is important to know that despite the ban, the Red Fortress areas of Berlin around Nettelbeckplatz in Wedding and Bodinstrasse in Neukölln fielded a strong support on the 1st of May 1929. The Rotofana that morning had proclaimed under the headline Auf die Strasse. A tremendous change has taken place throughout the world since last year. The walls of capitalist stabilization, which in 1928 still seemed strong and impregnable, have become fragile. The content is scrounged and gnawed at the contradictions of a system that derives the wealth and well-being of one from the hunger and deprivation of the other. The working masses, who had hesitantly moved a year ago, still in a dull, cumbersome step, are marching today under the bright, fringe tones of the proletarian offensive against the capitalist system. Marching today with the brilliant victory of the consciousness of the ascending class that belongs to the future with the firm, unflinching knowledge that no one on earth can succeed in destroying the proletariat's victory in the long run. In the Workers' Council elections, the Communist Party marched, marching the revolutionary trade union opposition into revolutionary clan in a clear, unstoppable attack against the position of reformism. In all large-scale operations, the pits and smelters of the Ruhr district, at Siemens, the AEG, in the Berlin Traffic AG, in the Leuna factory, in the chemical halls of the IG Farben industry, as in the large shipyards of Blumenfoss in Hamburg and the Germania shipyard in Kiel. Everywhere, everywhere, decisive bridges of the communists. Everywhere, everywhere, crushing defeats for the reformists. The bourgeoisie and its social lackeys deserted for a test of power with the German proletariat. They want to ban the proletarian on the streets of Berlin on May the 1st. While the active will to fight of the workforce was documented in the metalworks in Berlin, while the rural proletariat began to fight in the mines, while the railroad workers were on strike, the Berlin workers were to celebrate their May Day, the World Labor Day of the working class. May they ally themselves, bourgeoisie and social democracy, class justice and class police, Stahlhelm and Reichsbanner, SPD leaders, reformist trade union bureaucrats, criminal police, spies and bourgeois socialist journalists. You will not be able to extinguish the flame of the revolution, the flame of the revolution embodied in the party of Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg, the KPD. With the ban on the KPD from May the 1st, 1929, many workers failed to show, but the support nevertheless remained strong. However, when the KPD workers did march on the streets, the Schutzpolizei were quick to draw their truncheons to beat the crowds back and disperse gatherings. But the police violence began to rise when the workers resisted their efforts. By the evening, armoured cars of the police were suppressing protests on Hermannstrasse in Neukölln, and protesters were building barricades. Blutmai of 1929 stretched beyond the first. The police shot and murdered over 30 people, none of whom belonged to the KPD. Yet it galvanized the image of the worker resisting, something that the NSDAP, upon their coming to power, were keen to capitalize upon, but ultimately suppress, yet to do so they had to extinguish their workers' organizations. Those companies mentioned in the Rotofana press of the 1st of May 1929, IG Farben, AEG, and Siemens, were some of the largest in Germany during the 1920s and into the 1930s, and naturally many of the workers were unionized. Unions had been suppressed in Germany between 1878 and 1890 under the Iron Chancellor Bismarck's Socialistengesetz, or socialist law, that forbade socialist, social democratic, or communist associations. But in 1892, with a Congress, unions began to gain power and influence once again. Yet rather than being 
unions belonging to the workers of one company, for instance, AEG or IG Farben, the unions orientated themselves chiefly around policies of political parties or occupation, in this latter respect returning to the ancient idea of guilds. The Allgemeine Deutsche Gewerkschaftsbund, or ADGB, the General German Trade Union Federation, founded in 1919, was allied with the Social Democrats. It had helped to counter the Kapp Lutwitz putsch in 1920 by organizing a general strike to which 12 million workers took part. The Allgemeine Freie Angestelltenbund, or AFA Bund, the General Federation of Free Employers, founded in 1921, was a collection of associations including bank employees, ship engineers, shoe industry workers, captains and helmsmen, amongst others, totaling 14 and also belonging to the Social Democrats and left-leaning parties, and from 1931 was part of the Iron Front resistance. The Centralist Party had the Christian Unions. The Revolutionaire Gewerkschaftsopposition, or RGO, belonged to the KPD. The Hirsch Dunkerschen Gewerkeverein associated itself with the Liberal Deutsche Demokratische Partei, or DDP party, and so on and so forth. However, the financial crisis that had begun in October of 1929 and lent so much support from the disenchanted masses towards the NSDAP had left the unions weak. Unemployment was high, without workers, there were little Jews, there was a lack of cohesion and centralization of power of the workforce. In the period between 1927 and 1930, the number of days lost through industrial disputes numbered just half of that number of days lost in the period prior to the outbreak of World War I, with 3.7 million days lost annually. Yet for the industrialists, even the stepping in of the Weimar state in disputes that had led to the fall in the number of days lost, it was still too many. Industrialists were desperate to see their profits grow, and one of the major barriers that, although weakened, nevertheless still stood in their way, was the trade unions. During this period, according to historian Michael Burley, Germans who did have jobs faced wage cuts, some introduced through direct appeals to the workforce over the heads of the union representatives, shortened work hours or compulsory alternation with the unemployed. In some plants, for example at IG Farben, chemists and engineers over 55 years of age were let go and younger men kept a form of industrial triage. The workers' trust in their union representatives declines as the latter clung to unrealistic wage levels, even if this meant a factory would close down. Depression both reinforced and undermined solidarities. In some plants, management received anonymous denunciations of idling union officials. Out with the trade union bosses, the party is over here. Meanwhile, the depression that had begun with the Wall Street crash of October 1929 and the industrialist struggles with the unions was playing into the hands of Hitler. The Depression was turning more and more men who lacked money due to falling wages and rising inflation, desperate for food whom had lost their jobs, being evicted to the houses established by the Sturmabteilung, the SA. Here they were taken in and fed. Whilst this took place, Hitler courted the industrialists whom were equally desperate for money, such was their greed, with the intention of taking from them more money. In 1931, Fritz Thyssen, a supporter of the NSDAP, convinced the Ruhlader, an association of the 12 most influential Ruhr industrialists, to make the first contribution to the NSDAP. As James Paul, author of Who Financed Hitler, wrote, The money was not merely to help the Nazis, but rather to exercise an influence on them, and their predominant task was to weaken the unions further. For Hitler, he also opposed the unions. Seeing the trade unions as a product of communism, which in turn fell into his opinion that Marxism was a Jewish doctrine, meant that the trade unions, in the opinion of the NSDAP, were a means to infiltrate German industry by the Jews. Goebbels also fell onto this opinion that the unions were a form of Jewish socialism. Rather than falling towards the traditional Marxist thinking of the working class struggle to gain control of the means of production. Goebbels saw the class conflict not as the typical international struggle of the worker, such that Mayday represented, but rather the struggle of the ethnic Germans against coercive outsiders, namely meaning the Jews. Matthew Archibald, in his dissertation Power in a Union, German Organized Labour and the Rise of the Nazi Party, neatly sums this up in a reference to Goebbels' 1927 pamphlet Der Nazi Sozi, Frage und Antworten für die Nationalsozialisten, 
In the Nazi Sozi, Goebbels proclaimed that the real crime of the bourgeois class in Germany was transforming the love of one's ethnicity into a greedy love of wealth. According to Goebbels, the failure of the capitalist system in Germany was not based on income inequality or the existence of primate property, the traditional socialist view, but rather on the lack of emphasis Germans placed on their ethnic heritage. Goebbels believed that class could be transcended not through elimination of economic stratification, but through the organization of ethnic Germans into a single leader-driven state. This single leader-driven state to which Matthew Archibald refers presented itself within the National Socialist doctrine of the Führer Prinzip, where the Führer, Adolf Hitler, would embody the German spirit and be its sole leader, be that if the image of him was one of an army officer struggling for Germany's honor, a worker rising to the top, or as a man sent by God to bring salvation to the German people. An idea I covered somewhat in our previous episode of In the Shadow of the Swastika, entitled Christmas. In most respects, Hitler was playing the field. The unions were the enemy as they fractured the working class into whom he wished to imbue a new nationalist identity, something that the very idea of the international class struggle of Marxism and socialism worked against. In idealistic terms, Hitler's view was that the worker and factory owners would work together with a mutual respect to one another for the benefit of the national folk, something he summed up in Mein Kampf in declaring that Germans did not have to renounce the representation of justified class interests in order to become members of the national people's community. It was the idea that in their demands for the collective of individuals, the unions were ignoring the common interest that there shouldn't be a betterment of the worker, rather a worker who strives for the betterment of the nation. With the Nazis coming to power on the 30th January 1933, there was no denying how powerful they were or just how far they were willing to go to consolidate and maintain the required position as the almost unopposed force. The events from the appointment of Hitler as Chancellor on the 30th of January 1933 through to the Ermachtigungsgesetz, as covered in our previous series, the Reichstag had proved that the NSDAP of Hitler, Goebbels and Goering, amongst others within the party, were willing to discard morality to achieve their desires. The emergency protection for the people and land decree, the desecration of the police force by the assertion of tens of thousands of Nazi-aligned brutes, the Reichstag fire ordinance and the incarceration in the early concentrationslager had all been to weaken the forces that might present an opposition to the new direction which the NSDAP wished to force the nation. The first two months of their power had all been about deconstructing the apparatuses of old, now that, with the Ermachtigungsgesetz or Enabling Act passed in the Reichstag on the 23rd of March 1933, and that came into force the following day, that handed total power by all the parties bar the Communists and Social Democrats to Hitler, Hitler had the power he craved and little to no opposition to stand in his way. It was about reconstructing the nation in a national socialist image. However, there, as long as the unions existed, always stood a threat that an extra-governmental organization might quash a revolution, which the NSDAP saw their coming to power as such. Like the unions had done prior in 1920 with the Cap Lutwitz Putsch, that the RDG Bay had managed to quash with its strike. It was on the evening of the passing of the Ermachtigungsgesetz that Goebbels, whom had on the 14th of March 1933 officially been made the Minister of Propaganda and Enlightenment, turned his attention toward May Day, writing in his diary. I'm introducing as the first bill the declaration of May 1st as the national holiday of the German people and will be entrusted by the cabinet with its implementation. We will do this on a grand scale and for the first time unite the entire German people in a single demonstration. From then on, the confrontation with the trade unions will begin. We will not get peace until they are completely in our hands. The atrocity propaganda abroad is causing us a lot of trouble. The many Jews who have emigrated from Germany are inciting the whole world against us. Now it is taking its revenge that the old state made no preparations whatsoever in the field of foreign propaganda. We are defenseless against the attacks of our opponents. We are already beginning with the preparations for May Day. This celebration is to be a showpiece of organization and a demonstrative power. Until this point, May Day had not been a national holiday. 
it had been a symbolic day where the workers put down their tools and stepped out into the streets to voice their demands. Now that symbolism was taken away and twisted into a day unto which all Germans would enjoy the freedoms of a day of rest which they would have to thank the new state for. Goebbels had, however, been working on his ideals of the first 1st of May under National Socialism being a spectacle even before the creation of his ministry. On the 5th of March 1933, Albert Speer travelled through the night to Berlin on the orders of Goebbels's private secretary, Karl Hanke. The initial order for the young architect Speer was to report to Berlin and to Dr. Goebbels, who had expressed a desire for Speer to remodel the interior of the Ordenspalais on Wilhelmplatz, a formerly Baroque building that had been redesigned into the neoclassical style by the Berlin great, Karl Friedrich Schinkel. Making the building suitable for use for the as yet undeclared Minister of Propaganda and Enlightenment. It was whilst here, after discussing with Goebbels the bastardization of Schinkel's magnificent interiors, that Speer happened upon some plans that were laid out on a table. I happened to see a sketch on his desk of the decorations for the night rally that was to be held at Tempelhof Feld on May 1st. The designs outraged both my revolutionary and my architectural feelings. Those look like the decorations for a rifle club meet. I exclaimed. Hanker replied, If you can do better, go for it. That same night I sketched a large platform and behind it three mighty banners, each of them taller than a ten-story building, stretched between wooden struts. Two of the banners would be black, white, red, with a swastika banner between them. A rather risky idea, for in a strong wind those banners would act like sails. They were to be illuminated by powerful searchlights. The sketch was accepted immediately, and once more I had moved a step ahead. Full of pride, I showed my drawings to Tesinov, but he remained fixed in his ideal of craftsmanship. Do you think you have created something? It's showy, that's all. But Hitler, as Hanker told me, was enthusiastic about the arrangement, although Goebbels claimed the idea for himself. Whilst the preparations for the 1st of May celebrations were advancing and the workshops in Berlin were busy preparing the audacious banners that were to rise so high, the unions began to adapt. Through the events that had unfolded, the unions that had survived until this point were beginning to feel uneasy. They had been tied to political bases as discussed earlier, but for those of the centre-left and the left-wing, those parties, the ones that had been co-founders of May Day as the International Workers' Day, they no longer had parties to be associated with. Many felt the noose already being slipped over their heads. Goebbels had, on the 22nd of March, transferred the Reichsrundfunksgesellschaft, a Reichsbroadcasting Company, to the Ministry of Propaganda and ordered a cleansing action that would remove any Marxist elements from within, denying the unions yet another platform from which they might be able to directly address their masses. And the papers? They had already fallen to the emergency decree for the protection of people and land enacted in the days after Hitler had assumed power. On the 29th of March 1933, Robert Ley was appointed as the leader of the Actions Committees zum Schutz der Deutschen Arbeit, or the Action Committee for the Protection of German Labour, a new force that made little secret that its purpose was to unify the German workers under one national socialist organisation and destroy the weakened unions. Two days after this, the first acts of the Gleichschaltung the centralization of power were passed. This I covered in detail in Arctung History's first series, He Who Holds the Devil. But in summary, the purpose of the Gleichschaltung was to deny the German states their own governments and instead instill power within the centralized government in Berlin that would then trickle down to the National Socialists' Gau, or district, that would govern locally, thereby establishing a system of totalitarian control. Bringing into action, the Christian and free trade unions sought to defend themselves against their destruction. On the 1st of April 1933, Anton Erkelens of the Social Democrats and a leader within the Hirsch-Dunker trade unions wrote to Adam Stegewald of the Christian trade unions in which he suggested three old trade union branches merge of their own accord and then present themselves to the government as a unified trade union. If the unions themselves take the transformation into a unified union into their own hands, they may be able to ensure that this unified union remains a voluntary union in the previous sense, i.e. that it does not become a compulsory state union. The ADGB on the 5th of April displayed readiness to partake in what would be a standardization of the trade unions. Yet the unions were anything but naive. 
to think that the NSDAP, whom had come to power relatively quickly and once in it secure their position with an iron fist, were to let, after the Gleichschaltung of power had passed, an organization present a unified front that might present an opinion separate to that of the state and to divide the workers' interests, they were to be sorely mistaken. On the 17th of April, Goebbels, now putting his full efforts into the National Socialist May Day celebrations that had been entitled Tag der Nationalen Arbeit on National Workers' Day, turned to his diary. May 1st, we will make a grandiose demonstration of the German people's will. On May 2nd, the Union houses will be occupied. Gleichschaltung also in this area. There may be a row for a few days, but then there are hours. You shouldn't be considerate here. We are only doing the worker a service when we free him from the parasitic leadership that has made his life angry up to now. If the unions are in our hands, then the other parties and organizations will not be able to hold out much longer. There is no going back. You just have to let things take their course. The NSDAP party leadership have been infuriated by the fact that the workers' councils in factories and within the unions in March, when the NSDAP had risen to over 40% support, but this increase in NSDAP support on the political spectrum had not transferred into the workers' councils themselves. Therefore, they, as Goebbels writes under Gleichschaltung, were required to be brought to heel. On the 20th of April, under strict secrecy, the trade unions met to begin the negotiations around their merger at the Adler Hotel on Kurfürstendamm in Berlin West. Over the next eight days, the free... Christian, Hirschdunker trade unions, as well as the German national trade unions, discussed how to proceed. Finally, on the 28th, they agreed. The founding manifesto was drafted by Theodor Brauer and Jakob Kaiser, the latter whom had voted to give Hitler total power, but later would become a member of the German resistance. The manifesto was an attempt to form a bridge between the workers and the NSDAP state. It pandered to the new National Socialist ideology whilst trying to maintain individual aspects of the Union's belief. The principal goals were according to Jakob Kaiser. 1. The trade unions are the associations appointed to represent the social and economic interest of the workers. 2. The highest goal of their work is to promote a healthy state and people as a prerequisite for securing the moral, cultural, state and economic social rights of the German working class. Three, the basic religious forces are to be respected and recognized in their stately and socially constructive significance. Four, the trade unions have to be completely independent of party politics. But the declaration of the trade unions worried Goebbels not. What might have worried him was on the final day of April, the skies over Berlin were dark with rain and strong winds ripped through the city streets. The tribune on the Tempelhof Feld had not yet been hung with the great flags that Albert Speer had envisioned. If it had, it might well have blown away. But Goebbels had not to worry. When the day dawned on the Tag der Nationalen Arbeit, the skies were clear and blue, causing Goebbels to note that it was real Hitler weather. The Turkish Post, the German-language newspaper in Istanbul, heralded the arrival of this day with a report from Willy Rabenschlag. The German people have pronounced their verdict. Truly a glorious judgment of the tremendous struggle which the unknown soldier of World War I began 14 years ago and which he carried through the victory with unparalleled energy. The struggle continues even on this day the slogan of the people's chancellor applies. Immense things have been achieved. Immense things still have to be achieved. The overwhelming majority of the German working class is turning away from the delusions of Karl Marx. German comrade, do you doubt that Hitler will succeed in imbuing the entire German people with the high ideals of German national renewal and thus complete the unity of the Reich, which has not yet been achieved? Comrades of the people, now we are moving into a better future. Today we commemorate the man who was our leader in the greatest time of need, not to lose faith. Today we want to build bridges to those who stood apart from our struggle all these years. The 9th of November brought shame and disgrace to our people, We've endured and struggled unspeakably since those days. Today is the day of fulfillment. We cannot celebrate it more festively than by remembering our fallen comrades of the war and the fallen fighters in their brown dress of honor. Today also heralds the awakening of the nation. Many young fighters had to lay down their lives for this, and there was much mourning. Today and everything we have achieved was born out of faith in Germany 
out of hope in you, German comrade of the people. What still has to be fought for now will be conquered by love for all the people, regardless of their denomination and status. The nationalization of Germany is now taking giant strides. All that is small, all that resists, is overcome in the service of the great common destiny. The German, the great German idea, raises its wings in victory, and that is the awakening of the nation. But that is, at the same time, the work of the man who was Chancellor today, who has fought for Germany's soul like no other. For everything that has driven him, everything that determines his thoughts and actions, is only that which sustains us all. Germany, only Germany, its honour, greatness and freedom. The day had been meticulously planned out. On the festival platz on the Tempelhofer in the south of the city, Albert Speer's plans had been realised. Workmen had been slaving away erecting a great tribune of timber. Flags were already flying in the wind, with the only change here being not a giant swastika party banner at the centre flanked by the flag of the German Empire. Rather, it was the reverse. The party was closing completely in upon the state. However, the Tempelhof celebration was for later in the day. Firstly, it was the youth who were to be celebrated on the Lustgarten on Berlin's Museum Island. Here the crowds flocked and lined the streets. The windows of the Schloss had been decorated with great fir garlands. The gathered on the Esplanade were representatives from over 150 different student corps dressed in full attire. Beside them, 2,000 singers from the Berlin Sängerbund awaited. They all shared one thing in common. They all stared down unto Dänlinden, waiting for the appearance of the Chancellor and the Reich President. Both Reichspräsident von Hindenburg and Reichskanzler Hitler had only returned to Berlin from Munich that very morning, arriving in the Reichshauptstadt at 8am. The city was already awash with the flags and the open squares busy with different groups of workers who had made the journey to the city for the first May Day under the Hackenkreuz. As von Hindenburg and Hitler refreshed themselves in preparation for the day's celebrations orchestrated by Dr. Goebbels, more and more children flocked to the Wilhelmplatz to surround the governmental buildings that had stood since the days of Bismarck. At half past nine, the doors to the main portal of the Bismarck Chancery swing open, through which exits the aged field marshal president, followed closely by the young chancellor. The crowd immediately upon sight of the president burst into cheers. Hindenburg firstly acknowledges the guard standing beside the door, and then the crowd. Quickly, it is into the waiting car. Hindenburg first, followed by Hitler, who takes a seat next to him. Then, entering a car behind, is Vice-Chancellor von Papen and von Hindenburg's son. The gates open. Leaving the chancery, the crowds flock the cars as they turn left onto the Wilhelmstrasse, driving slowly as those around clamber to get a view of the dictators. At Unterdain Linden, the former royal procession, the car turns right and onto the parade, driving where once Friedrich the Great would have rode. The street and the city was in splendour. Windows were open, flags hanging, even the telephone posts and posts for the trams had been repainted a deep green. Upon sight of the car, the 2,000 singers burst into song. At the top of their voices, they sung Deutschland, du mein Vaterland. And the crowds pushed forward as they tried to get a better glimpse of the leaders of the nation. Over 100,000 people, or so the propaganda would claim, had gathered on the Lustgarten. The square had been fitted out with loudspeakers so that when it came to the time for speeches, all would be able to hear. Goebbels welcomed the Reichspräsident and Reichskanzler and shook hands with leader of the Reichswehr, von Blomberg, before heading to the lectern that overlooked a crowd of brown shirts that separated him from the people. One Berlin newspaper paraphrased Goebbels' speech as such. Dr. Goebbels said that it was no coincidence that the holiday of national labour began with an appeal to the German youth, the bearer of the German future. Where otherwise the machine guns rattled and the hateful bells, the class struggle and the international rang out, on 1st of May, or the first year of Hitler's cabinet, the entire German people came together in a unanimous and united commitment to the state, the people, and the common German nation. All differences had been blurred, the barriers of class struggle and the class conceit had been torn down. On this day, the wheels stand still and the machines are silent, not because the dictates of the class struggle demand it, but because it is the government itself that has given the command to let work rest on this holiday of the German nation. Above the ruins of the collapsed liberal capitalist state, the idea of the national community was rising. The government had thus taken upon itself an enormous duty and responsibility. 
It was not for this reason that Marxism had been brought to its knees in order to deprive the work of his political and economic representation. If this government has put an end to the struggle of the classes amongst themselves and has cleared the way for the social balance, it is thereby assuming the duty of social peace, justice, labour and its sweeping forces. Goebbels continued with talk of honouring the fallen and thanking von Hindenburg for delivering the NSDAP to power. But what he had said in his speech was poignant to the cause of wiping out the old memories of May Day, breaking down the traditional aspects of it that linked back to the Haymarket riots and building them up with a national holiday where there were no workers on that day to strike. With the speech over, it was time for the Reich's president to shake hands with those attended and step forward towards the rostrum. The Reich president first greets the guests of honor present, amongst them the doyen of the diplomatic corps, Runtius Orsenigo, the Reich minister of armed forces, General von Blomberg, the Reich minister of the interior, Dr. Frick, the state parliamentary president and minister of justice, Kroll, the lord mayor, Dr. Zahm, the Reich youth leader of the NSDAP, von Schirach, the Berlin police president, von Levetzo, numerous ambassadors and envoys. As the Reich president enters the rostrum, adorned with the Reich war flag, a new storm of cheers erupts towards him, and hundreds of thousands of bright children's voices cheer. For the elite in attendance, they retreat shortly after from the spectacle, and the crowds are left to mull together with entertainment put on by various NSDAP-aligned organizations. For Hitler, Goebbels, and Hindenburg, there are other matters to attend to. Throughout the day prior and the morning, Planes had been arriving into the Berlin airport on Tempelhof, only a few hundred meters from where the Tribune was having the finishing touches applied to it. These delegates came from across the Reich, from cities such as Hamburg and Cologne, as well as Danzig, a city under the auspices of the League of Nations. All had gathered within the Congress Hall of the Chancery Building, the hall in which the Berlin Congress had taken place in 1878 and the politics of the Balkans had been decided. Now Dr. Goebbels welcomed the delegates from different workers' representations from across the Reich, here with a speech that was shortly followed thereafter by Hitler, who spoke. I believe that for all of you who are gathered here in this venerable hall to greet the Reich president is perhaps the greatest day of your lives. You will remember these minutes for the rest of your lives, and from them you will carry back to your homeland the conviction that the German worker and the German workers here in the capital of the Reich are receiving from the Reich president himself the honor and appreciation that German labor and the German workers can claim. You will also see from this how untrue and incorrect is the assertion that the revolution that has taken place in Germany is directed against the German worker. On the contrary, its innermost meaning and its clearest purpose is to integrate the millions of our German workers into the German national community, and thus to really inwardly integrate them into our holy German Reich. With Hitler finished, von Hindenburg stood to speak. Von Hindenburg welcomed all those who had made the journey and asked that each delegate should come forth and shake his hand as they introduced themselves. Workers came forward, some from the Saarland that was occupied by Britain and France as to the terms of the Treaty of Versailles. Those of the Tsar asked the president for the swift returning of the Tsar to the motherland. Then came winemakers from the Mosul who presented the Reich's president with bottles of wine from the famous region. And finally, a fisherman of Danzig, who had only arrived that very morning, presented the ailing Reich's president with a 12-pound, or five-and-a-half kilo, salmon, caught shortly before taking the flight that had brought him to the Reich's Hauptstadt. Meanwhile, on the streets, a great march had begun. Quickly, the streets that led toward the Tempelhof Feld were filled with the columns of men marching in unison, as well as others walking with their families, taking in the stroll toward the evening's festivities. Many of those who were marching had begun at the Horst Vessel Platz, formerly Burlow Platz. This is where the Horst Vessel House stood, a building that had once been the Karl Liebknecht House, the headquarters of the KPD and the Rotafana, the building named after the murdered communist leader we covered earlier. Now it was, like the Platz, named after the fallen National Socialist SA member, Horst Wessel, whom had supposedly been murdered by communists. Amongst the organizations marching 
für nationalsozialistische Betriebsellenorganisationen, NSBOs, or National Socialist Factory Cell Organizations. These were a quasi-union of the NSDAP's own making, however they often had views more akin toward national Bolshevism, and believed that the revolution was an ongoing and one day the wealthy elites would be purged. The NSBO was founded in 1928, but it remained quite irrelevant, having in 1932 just 300,000 members in comparison to the Democratic and Christian unions, whom had a membership numbering in excess of 5 million. Yet, with gusto, they marched. The NSBO faction belonging to the Ullstein House, one of the major printing houses in Berlin, marched in the streets with their youth organization. The NSBO der Bühnenkünstler, or the NSBO of stage artists, and the NSBO of Schultheis Patzenhofer Brauerei were also in attendance, as were Bergarbeiter from the Ruhr, Bavarian workers, the Berlin butchers, and chimney sweepers, whom dressed in black. According to the papers printed, the following day the streets were awash with 15,000 marching from Wittenbergplatz alone, who were joined by divisions of the SA, SS, and Stahlhelm. It was quickly called the largest march not in German history, but in the history of the world. On the Tempelhof Fell, the crowd swelled. Overhead planes that had taken off from the airport that shared the field circled filming and photographing the ever-increasing crowd below. In the late afternoon, at around three, the crowd was treated to a different spectacle. Having departed in the early hours of the day and flying northeast, the silver cigar-like shape of the great airship, the Graf Zeppelin, appeared in the skies. First making a tour of the governmental quarter, it then turned south to circle above the crowds its tail, much to the dismay of the commander Hugo Erkner, ablazoned with the Hackenkreuz. On the field, 80 doctors were present as well as 70 SA doctors who had established an emergency tent and birthing rooms in case any of the pregnant women whom had joined the march gave birth with Maykind, May children. A reporter from the Vossische Zeitung recorded the atmosphere. You can tell it's a festival of the folk by the atmosphere. It is the famous Berlin festive mood with which everything, even the most strenuous things, are endured and which gives everything a good side. When the loudspeaker calls out the urgent request of a Viennese lady who asks her husband to report to her immediately, a huge roar of laughter goes up and down the square. She has won the hearts of the Berliners by storm, this Viennese lady. And already the first anecdotes are passing from mouth to mouth. Above all, there is the beautiful story of the fish steamer man from Wesemunde who had arrived on a plane and forgot his knee-high waterproof rubber boots in Hanover. Whereupon, of course, the plane in Berlin immediately flew back to Hanover in order to get the fish steamer's boots. The sun is sinking, the shadows are getting longer, and the legs lame. But the mood is growing. Music plays incessantly, Acrobats of the air show their daredevil skills. The flag is waving. New crowds are still streaming in. Shortly after eight, the light in the May evening sky has faded. It is at this moment that the white and violet lights of great spotlights penetrate the darkness. The beams of light cutting like a knife through the dark and illuminating the swastika flags that adorn the tribune and the feld. Not long after the lights spring into life, the crowd falls silent and turns toward the tribune. A band has struck up music, and the attention of the masses is on the figures now emerging onto the steps. Goebbels remembered. On the Tempelhofer Feld, you can't see over this enormous sea of people. The spotlights flash and shine across it. You can only see the grey masses standing head to head. I open briefly and allow a minute of silence for the miners who died in Essen on the same day. Now the whole nation stands still. The loudspeakers carry the silence over town and country. A shattering moment of togetherness and solidarity of all classes and all ranks. Goebbels approaches the rostrum, and after a quick statement, broadcast to over six million radios in the nation, he holds a national minute silence for those days. Then, to great cheers, Hitler approaches dressed in a brown uniform. He flicks his hand up and down toward the crowd. Goebbels introduces Hitler. 
heutigen Abend spricht der Kanzler, der Führer des jungen Deutschlands, zum deutschen Volk, Adolf Hitler, unser Fahnenträger und Führer, hat das Wort. Hitler begins. Deutsche Volksgenossen und Genossinnen, der Mai ist gekommen. So hieß es im deutschen Liede. Und durch viele Jahrhunderte war dieser Tag nicht nur der symbolische Tag. His opening statement makes no secret how he perceived May Day prior to the NSDAP seizure of power. May has come, so says the German song. And through many centuries, the day of the beginning of May was not only the symbol of the arrival of spring in the land, it was also the day of joy, of festive mood and spirit. There came a time when this day was claimed for its own, and the day of nascent life and hopeful joy was transformed into a day of strife and inner struggle. A doctrine that had taken hold of our people tried to turn the day of awakening nature, of the visible arrival of spring, into a day of hatred, fratricidal struggle, strife and suffering. Decades have passed over the German lands, and more and more this day seem to document the division and discord of our people. But finally, after deepest suffering had taken hold of our people, there came a time of reflection, a time when German people turned inwards and came together again. And today we can sing again with your old folk song. May has come, our people's awakening is here. The symbol of the class struggle, of the eternal quarrel and strife is now once again transformed into the symbol of the great unification and upliftment of the nation. And that is why we have chosen this day of awakening nature for all times to come as a day of regaining our own power and strength, and thus at the same time of that creative work which knows no narrow limits, is not bound to the trade union, to the factories and counting houses, a work which we want to recognize and promote everywhere, where it is done in a good sense for the life and existence of our people. Nachdem das tiefste Leid unser Volk erschlagen hat, eine Zeit des in sich Kehrens und damit eine Zeit des neuen Zusammenfindens der deutschen Menschen. Hitler's speech was comparatively short, and it also did not lead into a tirade against Marxism and the Jews like often it would. Instead, he used the speech to try and infuse those gathered with a sense of their belonging to a German community, to a new Geist, to a new spirit. Finally, when Hitler's speech came to an end, the band struck up the Deutsche Lied, and all those gathered sung. The sky was then awash with the colours of fireworks, and the night sky lit up with the image of Hitler burning in the sky formed in fireworks. The next morning, after those who had fested on the streets after an evening's high had stumbled home, the SA and SS trucks loaded with the brown and black clad troops rushed through the city streets of Berlin. The memory had hardly faded since the last time an action such as this had happened on the nights following the Reichstag fire, but once again, here they were. The new United Union formed only a few days prior had lended, willingly, their support to the National Day of Labour of the NSDAP. The unity together had sought, like so many others had, to grasp onto their existence in the new Germany proclaimed by Hitler and Goebbels. Yet if they believed this new direction of theirs was to bring them sanctuary, they were sorely mistaken, and they were to quickly realize it. The SA and SS quickly occupied all of the trade union headquarters bar the Christian unions, and not just in Berlin, but throughout the country. The funds of the unions confiscated and directed 
into the NSDAP's own bank accounts. For the leaders of the trade unions, those who could be found were systematically arrested and incarcerated alongside the politicians, the previous group to fall foul of the NSDAP regime. Even Fyodor Leipart and Peter Grassmann, chairmen of the trade unions, confederation founded in the hope of survival and whom had pledged allegiance to the NSDAP regime, were arrested and imprisoned. At the Nuremberg trials after the war, a document came to light that revealed that this action had been in planning since the day after the first meeting of the unions at the Adler's Hotel on Confirstendam. It had been ordered by Dr. Robert Lay, the infamous alcoholic, and that the SA and SS were to carry out the occupation of trade union properties, and that the leaders were, in that reoccurring phrase that characterized the early NSDAP regime, to be put in protective custody. Shortly thereafter, the DAF, or Deutsche Arbeitsfront, was founded under the leadership of Dr. Robert Lay on the 10th of May, 1933. He appealed to the workers to reassure them with a speech. Workers, your institutions are sacred to us national socialists. I myself am a poor peasant's son and understand poverty. I know the exploitation of anonymous capitalism. Workers, I swear to you, we will not only keep everything that exists, we will build up the protection and the rights of the workers still further. Three weeks later, those promises disappeared with the law on trustees of labor that eliminated all collective bargaining, meaning all wage negotiations were handled via the government. In January 1934, the law on the regulation of national labor passed, which eliminated the worker from these negotiations. Over the years of the NSDAP rule, the workers take home from their wages fell further and further as the government, either in funding its war or in funding the politicians' lavish retreats, dipped further into the wage packets of those people that had gathered together on the Tag der Nationalen Arbeit. Money disappeared to the party, to organizations such as the Winterhilfswerk discussed in the previous episode of this series, and contracts for work found themselves in the hands of the favored few of the government. Sound vaguely familiar? In 1935, even the NSBO was absorbed by the DAF. May Day prior to 1933 was a day when the workers had taken to the streets to show their unity in their strife against corporations. May Day 1933, or the Tag der Nationalen Arbeit, was the day when the national government permanently placed the worker in strife. This has been the Arctung History Podcast. In the shadow of the swastika, May Day, and the quashing of the unions. Written and presented by myself, Simon J. James. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can support the continued production via patreon.com forward slash history, where tiers begin at as little as one euro. If you want to contact myself, you can do so through arctonhistory at gmail.com, or you can also follow on Twitter and Instagram with the handles at arctonhistory. From me... All that is left to be said is, until next time, goodbye.